open up your Bibles then to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. It's a joy to sing Christmas hymns. It's a joy to sing together. You sang very well today. I could hear all of your voices. I praise the Lord for that as we joined again the angels singing our glory to God. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. This is God's word. Luke 2, 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray together. Lord, we see that you were about your father's business from cradle to the grave and beyond. It was your food to do the will of him who sent you. You were about his work, the work of salvation, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Oh Lord, we we rejoice in all that you've done. And Lord, we thank you that, that you were about your Father's business because that means the salvation of our souls. Now, Lord, as your word is preached, I pray that you'd be honored and Christ known. I pray that you would use your word to draw those who don't yet know you, who haven't come into relationship with you. I pray that you'd bring them to salvation. We thank you so much for our time. Blessed, we pray in Jesus' name. Our text this afternoon is not, strictly speaking, a Christmas text. No nativity scene, no manger, no Virgin Mary. Well, she's here, but by this time she's already had multiple children, Jesus' brothers and sisters. Jesus, of course, being her firstborn, the eldest. This is not your typical Christmas text. No baby Jesus, no shepherds. No wise men, no herald angels singing. But if Christmas is about the Christ, and it is, then I suppose that any text in the Bible is a a Christmas text. And as much as the whole of God's word is about 
the living word. It all points us to Jesus Christ. He himself, as Basil read, is the incarnate word. What's more is that the Bible teaches us about God the Father and about God the Son, about who they are. And God's word is about what they came to accomplish together, their work. Christmas is not just about Jesus Christ, but it is about God the Father and about God the Son. Christmas is about what they came to accomplish together. What Jesus referred to, look at your text, verse 49, as my father's business. Now, if you're new here, if you've been invited by family or friends, if you're not a Christian today, then you have come on a perfect day. Not only because we have Christmas snacks and hot drinks, but because today you're going to learn about the meaning of Christmas. And more than Christmas, you will learn about what the Bible teaches. You will hear the message of the Bible, the gospel of God's salvation. You will learn about the Father's business and how Jesus Christ accomplished and was about his Father's business. And let me add that the message you hear today is the most important message that you will ever hear because what you do with this message and how you respond to this message will determine the eternal destiny of your soul. Simply put, the salvation or damnation of your soul. God the Father and God the Son are in the business of salvation. The salvation of sinners. Sinners like you and me. That is their business which is what Christmas is all about. This is what all of life is about. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is what Jesus Christ was all about. Look at verse 50. Some of you don't understand the things that are coming out of my mouth right now. The statements that I'm making. The statements that I'm speaking to you. And so let me explain. Let me help you understand. Let me give you an outline to follow as we consider our text this afternoon. First, we're going to look at who the Father is. Who is the Father? Second, who is the Son? And thirdly, finally, what is the Father's business and how is it accomplished? Now, before we drop into our outline, let me paint the scene for you and set the stage. Because the text is so colorful. Jesus as many of you know, grew up in Nazareth of the Galilee. Now, if you compare Israel to California, the Galilee was like the Bay Area. It really was. A large body of water, the Sea of Galilee, and it was surrounded by towns and villages. And Nazareth was located in the hill country. And so it was about 20 miles southwest of the lake. Jerusalem was in the south. Jerusalem was and is approximately 65 miles from Nazareth. Three times a year, faithful Jews would gather together and make pilgrimage from Nazareth, or from all over Israel, really, to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holidays. And the most important holiday throughout the year was the Passover, where Israel celebrated their independence, their liberation from Egypt, their redemption from the bondage of slavery. Now, 
If you were traveling great distances, it was safer to travel in groups, in a company. And so it was custom to travel with family and friends. Whole neighborhoods and towns would travel together caravan style. These trips to Jerusalem from Nazareth, mind you, Jesus' hometown, could take up to a week. A week. Again, Nazareth is about 60 miles, uh, 65 miles south, or rather Jerusalem is about 65 miles south uh, of Nazareth. And so we read on one such Passover, when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, Luke tells us that after the Passover week, after the celebration, look at verse 43, when they had finished the days, they returned. As Joseph and Mary, with family and friends, returned to Nazareth, Luke tells us, and I love this title, the boy Jesus lingered. He lingered in Jerusalem. Now, Joseph and Mary were unaware. They were traveling in a large company, and they must have assumed that the boy Jesus was with the company somewhere, with uh, family or friends. And they only discover the absence of Jesus after the first day's travel. The caravans would have stopped, no doubt, in ancient Jericho, where Mary and Joseph apparently discover that Jesus was not among them. They look for him, but they can't find him. And like any frantic parents, they return to Jerusalem. Now, just keep this in mind. They lost the Son of God. They lost the Savior of the world. Not in a supermarket, okay? Not in a department store, but in Jerusalem. And verse 46, it was three days before they found him in the temple among the scholars of Jerusalem. Jesus attending lectures, listening to and stumping the educated elite. Now this was a three-day search. And it's as if the temple was the last place they searched. The last place Mary and Joseph searched for Jesus. I mean, <laughs> what would a 12-year-old rag-tag country boy from Nazareth of the Galilee, what would he be doing among the scholars of Jerusalem? It was no wonder they didn't check in the temple. It's no wonder. Now, by way of comparison, Jesus is in eighth grade at this point. Okay? By way of comparison. An eighth grader can get into all kinds of trouble by himself. A parentless eighth grader would have gotten kicked out of the temple courts in an instant. They, they, would, have, they would have given Jesus the boot. Or, or at least, uh, if he was respectful, taken him, and he was, they would have taken him, if he showed interest in discussing the things of God, they would have taken him to an eighth grade class to learn among eighth grade intellects. Unless, unless of course... Those who heard him were astonished. Astonished by, the text says, his understanding, by his questions and his answers. In that case, they would have given him a fair listen, which is exactly what they were doing. And when Mary and Joseph finally find him, look at verse 48. The text says that they too were amazed. It's as if Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, had a captive audience surrounded by the aged 
scholars and PhDs and professors of Jerusalem. It's as if the boy Jesus is lecturing to a classroom full of scholars, teaching the teachers. And his listening audience was no doubt spellbound by the power of his rhetoric and his understanding. And so Joseph and Mary, they're amazed. Now let me pull over for a second here. This is the only account we have of Jesus' childhood. The gospel takes us from infancy to adulthood. And so this is the only account we have of Jesus, if you will, in his middle years. Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, the author of this gospel, decided to include this account. An account that no doubt, well, he heard from Mary. As Luke was preparing his gospel, preparing to write his gospel, he sat down with Mary and interviewed her. And I think Luke included this account to tell all of us, the readers, that Jesus was well aware of who he was and why he was sent of God. He knew at a very young age that he was the son of God. Now just think about this for a moment. The ancient of days standing in the temple, standing before Mary and Joseph, a 12-year-old boy, the Lord of the universe, a 12-year-old boy, the Savior of the world, a 12-year-old. We have here the mystery of the incarnation, and much more can and should be said about the incarnation, but that's not our focus today. Furthermore, Dr. Luke, I believe Luke included this account because the event left a profound impression on Mary, his mother. Look at verse 50 and 51. But they did not understand these statements which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Now, even though she didn't fully understand what Jesus said to her that day, said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Even though she didn't understand, she hid those conversations with Jesus in her heart. And would later, she would later fully understand after the death and resurrection of her son, after the death and resurrection of our Lord, she would only understand in retrospect after Jesus accomplished redemption, after Jesus purchased our salvation, after Jesus purchased her salvation with his own blood. And I imagine after after the death and resurrection, after the ascension, and as Mary began to grow in her faith, oh, how she must have played back the years she had with Jesus, the conversation and the dialogue. Well, we drop into our outline then. We can get lost in the particulars, but here we go. Firstly then, who is the Father? Jesus says in verse 49, my Father. After they find Jesus in the temple among the scholars, Mary, he's pulled off of the lectern. Mary sees Jesus. She pulls him off of the lectern, and in her grief she says, Son, why have you done this? Why'd you do this to us? Look, she says, your father and I have, have sought you anxiously. Mary says, your father and I. 
Referring, of course, to Mr. Joseph. He's there. And Jesus responds, you're seeking me? He says, why? Why? Why did you seek me? He says, did, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And no disrespect to Joseph or Mary here. No disrespect, but when Jesus says, my father's business, my father's affairs, my father's work, he is not referring to Joseph the carpenter, but to his heavenly father, to God the father. And here we have an interaction between God the father and God the son, a relationship, mind you, that Jesus was well aware of. A relationship that he, even as a 12-year-old, had cultivated. He was well aware of his sonship. He was well aware that he was the son of God. And if Jesus was about his father's business, then he was certainly in close, intimate fellowship and communion with his father. And in that communion, look at verse 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Mary knew, just as Joseph knew, that Jesus was referring to God the Father. Well, who then is God the Father? Friends, non-Christian friends here today. Jesus' heavenly Father is the maker of heaven and earth. The Bible is explicit. He is the creator and Lord of the universe. He is our creator. And let me say, he is your creator. He is holy. He is just. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. Not only is he holy and just, but he is merciful. He is gracious. The Bible says that he's full of compassion, abounding in goodness and truth. And his goodness, his holiness demands that sin be punished that wrongs be made right. Else he would not be good. He would not be just. He would not be holy. If he didn't punish sin and evil, he would not be God. Non-Christian friend, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin entered into the world through Adam. We are his descendants, and thus we are sinners. We are dead in our transgressions and sin. And we are ultimately and finally accountable to God our Maker. To God our Maker and our Lord. And in his justness, his justice demands that sin be punished. That sinners, you and me, that we pay the penalty for sin against an infinitely holy and an infinitely good God. The wages of sin, death, eternal condemnation, and separation from God's mercy and grace. This is the God to whom we all have to do. And as sinners, as children of wrath, by nature, as rebels and enemies, we, left to ourselves, left to ourselves now, we stand condemned and hopeless before God Almighty. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. But God, in His mercy and grace, God full of compassion, 
goodness and truth. He has not left us to ourselves. He has not left us alone. But we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We mourn in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. God the Father has not left us alone to ourselves. He has not left us to die in our sins, but He, because of His great love, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, His only Son, the only begotten of God. God the Father has not left us alone. God so loved the world that He gave or sent His only Son. Well, who then is the Son? Who then is the Son? Well, quite simply, the Son is Jesus Himself. The Son of God is Jesus Christ himself. Here in Luke 2, the 12-year-old Christ. Here in Luke 2, fully God and fully man. The Ancient of Days, the eternal Son of the living God. He is Isaiah 7, 14. Emmanuel, God with us. He is Yehoshua. His name will be Jesus for he will deliver his people from their sins. Who is the Son of God? He is truly God and truly man. He is the God-man who represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. Jesus Christ is the Savior, sent by God the Father, sent to save all who put their trust in him sent to save sinners from God's holy and just wrath, sent to save sinners from sin and the condemnation that we all rightly deserve. He is the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12. He is the truth, the life, and the way, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1, verse 29. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As the Son of God, he humbled himself, obedient to the Father, who in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be taken to himself. But he submitted to the Father's will, and Jesus made himself of no reputation. He came in the likeness of men. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Father, the author of salvation. And in his infinite love and mercy, sends God the Son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to accomplish salvation and is thus the Savior, the Messiah, the Christos, the Anointed One. Who is God the Father? Who is God the Son? And now, what is the business of the Father? What is the business of the Father and how is it accomplished? Jesus, as we read, was about his Father's business. Mind you, as we look at and get into their business... We will learn more about who they are, the Father and the Son. As we study their work, their business, we will gain more insight into their character and person. Now, if you look down at your Bible, some of your translations, and just a translational note here, some of your translations read house. House. Didn't you know I was in my father's house? 
verse 49. And many of your translations, the ESV, the NIV, the NASB Bible, they will have a little letter next to the word house. See that little letter? It's like an A or a B. And that letter directs your attention to the note in the margin or at the bottom of the page, which gives you an alternate translation, albeit an alternate, in my mind, a better translation. About my father's, as my translation reads, business. About my father's affairs. About the things of my father. The Greek word that is used here is the general word that's used for house or home, oikos. But it is also used with reference to a household, to the stewardship of a household and all of its affairs. The English word economy is rooted in this Greek word oikos, oikoinomia. Well, here's the question then. What then is the father's business? What are his affairs? And how is it accomplished? Well, quite simply, as we've been saying, God is in the business of saving sinners. God is in the business of saving sinners. He is in the business of salvation, which was and is accomplished by Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. The Son was sent of the Father to seek and save the lost, to save His people from their sins by the sacrifice of Himself, a perfect substitute, a sacrifice of atonement. The wrath of God was satisfied in Him and that He Himself bore that wrath by His stripes. Isaiah says, verse, uh, chapter 53, we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all it pleased the lord to crush him god made his soul as an offering for sin well you might say this to me uh yes pastor but that happened about 20 years after this text he's only 12 here he he is still some 20 years away from the cross, from the death and resurrection, which is where he accomplished the Father's business, his will. So how could he be about that business if he is yet a long way off? But you see, the three days that he spent among the teachers, listening, questioning, and speaking, the days that he spent with the teachers of Jerusalem, leaving them amazed at his understanding and answers. Those days were no doubt spent unpacking and expounding and unraveling the Old Testament, explaining and unpacking the promises of God and how they all pointed to the Messiah. He was trying to get them to sing, O come, O come, so that they might see that the whole of the Old Testament, it all pointed to the Christ. He was explaining and expounding <clears throat> the sacrificial system, the law, and how it revealed sin and humanity's need for the Messiah. He went from the patriarchs, perhaps, and then to the prophets and, and the priests and the kings, the tabernacle and the temple, the kingdom and the covenants, the people of Israel, their history, the Passover, their holidays. It all pointed to the Messiah. To the Christ, the whole of the Old Testament pointed to and prepared the Jewish people for the Christ. It was all, all of it was designed to teach sinners about God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and our absolute need for the Savior. 
so that they might cry out in earnest, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Another Christmas hymn, Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. So what was it that the boy Jesus discussed with the teachers? What was it that left them astonished by his understanding? Well, he tells us. It was the Father's business. Just as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3, the sermon we just heard ended right there. Just as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, he preached that day salvation to Nicodemus. Just as Jesus unpacked the Old Testament for the two men on the road to Eumaeus, explaining from Moses all the way through the prophets the things that concern salvation and the things that concern the Savior. Jesus once said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have salvation, not knowing that these are they which speak of me. They speak of me. They speak of the Savior. What then was Jesus discussing? What was it that left the scholars astonished? My friends, the boy Jesus was expounding the Old Testament to them. He was, no doubt, preaching the gospel of God's salvation. He was calling them to faith and repentance to see that it all pointed to the Messiah, to the Christ of God, to the Son of God. And as Joseph and Mary come upon this, and it is, a strange sight. A 12-year-old boy lecturing and waxing eloquent. As they, no doubt, heard Jesus expound the Old Testament, verse 48 says, they too were amazed. When Mary pulled Jesus off the lectern, when she pulled him aside and began to shake her finger at him, as it were. Jesus responds. He says, didn't you hear what I was saying? Were you not listening to what I was teaching them? The things that left them and you astonished? Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Didn't you know? And Mary, a frantic parent, would not fully understand. She herself would have to submit to the teaching of her son. Until she herself would repent and believe. Until she herself recognized that her son's work, his business, the father's business, was the salvation of her soul. And so you fast forward 20 years now. Fast forward 20 years. And it was Mary who stood at the cross. You remember the scene. And there at the foot of the cross, perhaps there she would have understood. Perhaps she, despite a mother's grief, would say to herself, he must be about his father's business. Born 
that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. My non-Christian friends who are here today, unbelieving and unrepentant, you are here at Pillar Baptist Church. This room is filled with Christians. Well, perhaps this side. There's a lot more people on this side. That's what I mean. Not that you are not believers. This room is filled with Christians. And in Christ, my friends, we too are about the Father's business. That's what we're about here. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are about their business. We are about the Father's business, the salvation of souls. And it is, non-Christian friend, our strong desire that you come to Jesus Christ, that you repent, that you die to self and sin, and that you trust in the shepherd of souls who came to deliver his people from their sins. That is what Christmas is all about. That is what we celebrate the gift of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, a gift that some of you have yet to accept and receive. And like I said at the beginning of this sermon, this gift is the most important gift you will ever receive. For your acceptance or rejection of this gift will determine the destiny of your soul. Now, some of you might be taken a little aback here. Well, my goodness. I didn't expect on Christmas to hear such a confrontational message at church. Maybe. Maybe that's not what you expect. But let me say, and I'll try to say it softly, but didn't you know we'd be about our Father's business? Confrontational, yes. The gospel of God's salvation confronts us all. But when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, when we submit to Christ as Lord and Savior, what was once confrontation becomes the source of our consolation and our hope. Would to God that you would consider the gospel, that you would, perhaps like Mary, keep these things in your heart, and by and by that you would look to Christ for the salvation of your soul whose business is the salvation of all who come to him by faith. As we sing the final song, please, Christians certainly, but non-Christians, consider the words. And please, please consider your soul and your need for Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what life is about. It's about giving glory to God as we find our hope in Him and Him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm thankful for your Son. We're thankful that you sent Him, that He came to accomplish salvation so that it is all in him, in his work, and in his person. And we who believe, we have hidden ourselves in Christ.
our life is hidden with Christ in God. And Lord, as there's some perhaps in this room who have yet to receive that gift and to come to submit themselves under the Lordship of Christ, I pray that you would use our worship service and our fellowship and certainly this song, our worship, I pray that you would use it to bring them to faith and salvation, to impress upon their heart the very words of truth that we find in your word. Lord, we thank you for our opportunity to gather together as your people. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to sing. Help us then to sing these truths out as from our heart and ultimately to you for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to be about your business. And your business was the salvation of our souls. We pray all this in Jesus' name.